And now to introduce today's speaker. We are joined by Dr. Sean Stanley, an outpatient psychiatrist at OHSU with an interest in medical education, professional identity formation, and providing rational, effective treatment for diverse psychiatric outpatients. Dr. Stanley is also Assistant Program Director for the OHSU Adult Psychiatry Residency, Co-Chair of the OHSU Psychiatry Grand Round Series, and the incoming Chair of the OHSU Medical School Admissions Committee. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Stanley, and I will turn it over to you. Great. Thanks so much, Dr. Lurcher. I really appreciate it and appreciate the invite to come speak to um, the folks at Providence. You all are doing fantastic work. Um, we really think of you all as a partner. And in fact, um, your system does some things that we at OHSU don't do, and we rely on you often um, in ways that um, you know, for patients when we can't provide the service that we need to do for patients. My talk today is on borderline personality disorder. I call it borderline personality disorder from the inside out because I find that learning about the neurobiology of something and how somebody works from the inside can really impact the way we interact with them um, in our clinics and in our care. Our objectives though, very specifically today, are to understand what the internal experience of persons with BPD is, to describe basic neurobiological findings in persons with BPD, and when I say BPD, it's borderline personality disorder. BPAD is actually borderline, excuse me, bipolar affective disorder. Oftentimes they're um, uh, confused. So BPD is borderline personality disorder. Um, and outline the most effective treatments for persons with BPD and comorbid psychiatric disorders. It's often a big question for providers. If somebody's got borderline personality disorder and they got depression and they got PTSD and they got bipolar disorder, what do you treat first? There's actually some good evidence for this. So we'll talk about this and it can be really helpful. And I have to say that I'm standing on the shoulders of giants today. This is not my own original work, but this is a synthesis of um, learning a lot from people. I've actually had the great fortune to meet three of these four persons. Uh, on the right is John Gunderson, who is now passed, but he uh, directed the MGH Center for um, uh, Personality Disorders and Borderline Personality Disorder. I got to attend a, uh, a training session with him at UCLA uh, a couple of years ago, and it was fantastically educative. Um, and then the two persons in the middle here. This is a Peter Fonagy and Anthony Bateman, um, and they are the two people who have created mentalization-based therapy, primarily from the UK. I got to attend a training with both of them. They're kind of the yin and yang of the UK approach to uh, borderline personality disorder. Peter Fonagy, kind of the brainy guy who waits 30 seconds before he responds, and his response is perfect. And then Anthony Bateman, the guy who jumps out there and does everything and says everything, um, is super active and engaged. They make a great pair together. They were wonderful to spend a little time with. And, and the closest to us, who I've actually not gotten a chance to spend any time with is Marshall Linehan, who's the developer of dialectic behavioral therapy. So some of what we're talk, going to talk about in the talk today comes from all three of these approaches um, in a kind of synthetic way of understanding um, the way that somebody with bipolar, excuse me, borderline personality disorder, the way their brain works, the way they react to things, and how we can interact with them as providers to with an understanding of that in a way that's helpful for them. So let me set the scene, and this may be um, somewhat familiar to you. I'm wondering if you've ever had um, patients in your, uh, give me a sec here, um, if you've ever had patients um, in your practice who have had frequent mood swings, uh, but didn't really meet the criteria for bipolar disorder, they had some reactive depression symptoms, and maybe some thoughts of suicide, but they didn't respond well to antidepressants. Maybe they've had disruptive outbursts and difficulty tapering off of opioids or patients with thoughts of cutting or otherwise harming themselves without really in any intent to end their lives. Patients who have told you you're the best doctor they've ever had until you disagree with them, at which point you're the worst doctor that they've ever had. Um, or patients where you dread seeing because every conversation is a struggle. 
a tug of war or you constantly worry that what's going to happen if you end up not giving them what they want. It's a clue. These are all potential presentations of borderline personality disorder. And we'll talk about why that is. I think it is interesting, important to note that this is not an uncommon diagnosis. It's about 6% of patients in primary care settings, 6% may have borderline personality disorder. 10% in outpatient psychiatry clinics, so only slightly more honestly than you see in the in primary care clinics, and about 25% of inpatients in psychiatry have borderline personality disorder. This is an overwhelming amount, um, and it's 1.5%, some estimates even higher in the general population, um, which compared to things like um, depression, major depressive disorder, and generalized anxiety disorder is less, but it's more than things like schizophrenia or um, uh, bipolar disorder. It is important to note when we think about borderline personality disorder, there are some studies that have showed, noticed some slight differences in prevalence of BPD across different uh, racial or ethnic uh, groups, but those studies are really brought, fraught by methodological issues and accuracy has to be questioned. As well, there's actually a, a robust um, uh, critical mass uh, or uh, criticism of personality disorders in general, and that they're really quite culturally tied. And it's really difficult to diagnose personality disorders across cultures. Now, certainly within a Western culture, we may be able to see that there are patients who have, you know, further outside of the um, regular behavioral pattern, but that may differ in different cultures. And we have to humble ourselves culturally when we think about personality disorders, including um, borderline personality disorder. So again, let's just talk quickly about the criteria of the diagnosis. Now, this is a DSM-5. This is what we use for diagnostic uh, 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 consistency and something that uh, has carries our uh, diagnostic criteria that we utilize in trying to identify certain psychiatric syndromes. Uh, the diagnostic criteria for borderline personality disorder is as following, a pervasive pattern. So goes in every place somebody goes, of instability of interpersonal relationships, self-image and affects. So again, relationships unstable, self-image unstable, affect, emotions unstable, and marked impulsivity. Beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts is indicated by five or more of the following. So again, just like with most DSM, get us kind of a menu, but you have to have at least five. And if you have five or more, the odds are that this is a significant challenge for you. So frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, a pattern of unstable or intense interpersonal relationships characterized by extremes of idealization and devaluation, identities disturbance, that's markedly or in persistently unstable self-image or sense of self, impulsivity in at least two areas, does not include suicidal or self-mutilating behavior in this particular criteria, recurrent suicidal behaviors, gestures or threats or self-mutilating behavior, affective instability due to marked reactivity of mood, so intense episodic dysphoria, irritability, anxiety, usually lasting a few hours, rarely more than a few days, chronic feelings of emptiness, inappropriate intense anger or difficulty controlling anger, and transient stress-related paranoid ideation. Now, I've gone through these really quickly because basically as and as I've gone through them, you probably have glazed over a little bit as I've done that. But imagine the, the, the feeling of a patient who's in your clinic who, as you whip out the book and start going through the diagnostic criteria, start to say, okay, well, you know, you're not hearing me, you're not hearing my story, you're just telling me these things. Now, people who have worked with borderline personality disorder for a long period of time realize this disconnect. Realize that as you're placing a diagnosis on someone, they're not feeling heard or understood. And that's a critical piece for people with borderline personality disorder. 
So Gunderson, John Gunderson, as I introduced earlier, has created a model of interpersonal coherence. Now this is built upon the internal experiences of persons with borderline personality. This is not telling you what you see, it's telling them what other people have told you they feel in circumstances, which connects with patients with borderline personality or way more than externally placed diagnostic criteria. Now, we'll, we can talk a little bit more about this, but they, think of borderline personality disorder as more of an interpersonal sensitivity disorder. So going from feeling connected with a person to feeling threatened and rapidly fluctuating between these two sets. You may see this even in your clinic with a patient. They may feel very connected, you disagree with something, but they feel very threatened. You start to agree, they feel connected again. But this is a, a bad yo-yo to uh, our, um, ride to be on, going back and forth, yo-yoing between these things. And the ideal state is to feel somewhat connected with people, and not threatened, so resilient enough that if you disagree, you're not, you don't feel threatened. Uh, now, if somebody with borderline personality disorder gets into this position of feeling threatened and the other person withdraws even further, you say, okay, I dismiss you, you're out of the clinic, then, then things can get really bad. They may feel dissociated, paranoid, impulsive, help reject. Again, at any time, if somebody comes to involve rescues, they may go back to that feeling of connectedness. But again, that's a temporary fix. That's not a permanent fix to this yo-yo problem of going between tech connectedness and feeling threatened. And ultimately, if there's clear um, withdrawal, uh, patients even with borderline personality disorder can become truly suicidal and hedonic, severely depressed. And again, um, there's this process that comes back and they can be held again, hospital, jail, things like this. The state hospital, unfortunately, can become a lifelong uh, setting for patients with severe borderline personality disorder because they can never get past that feeling uh, threatened or feeling uh, abandoned if they're discharged. So that's a tough situation, but this is an internal model of how the, a patient with borderline personality disorder may experience their interactions with others. And, and really is a way that Gunderson and, and those say, maybe we should just use this as a diagnostic criteria. People really uh, connect with it more. Let's move on. I wanna to go to the inside of bipolar, <laughs> I keep saying that, I'm sorry, borderline personality disorder. Uh, and we'll look at some of the neurobiological studies because I think they're super enlightening. First of all, I didn't choose to have borderline personality disorder. I inherited it. Many people think that borderline personality disorder is primarily a trauma disorder, which if that was the case, you know, many, many patients with trauma would have borderline personality disorder and patients without trauma wouldn't have borderline personality disorder. And really it wouldn't make any difference whether or not you had a family member with borderline personality disorder or not. The studies seem to indicate that borderline personality disorder is actually quite heritable. So um, uh, having, a, uh, having borderline personality disorder confers about five times greater risk that you're, you'll have a first degree relative who also has borderline personality disorder. So fairly high heritability, about 50%. It's less than the highest heritability, heritable um, psychiatric disease, which is ADHD, super heritable. Very likely if somebody's got ADHD in a family, there's gonna be another person or two in that family who has ADHD. Schizophrenia, also very heritable. Borderline personality disorder, right under those, way above things like major depressive disorder, anxiety, PTSD. So it's quite heritable, in fact. So it is not uh, something that just uh, comes on through trauma. It is heritable. People inherit it. My opioid system works differently. Now, there is ample evidence that in the brains of persons with borderline personality disorder, there's a difference in available um, endogenous circulating, oh, sorry, there's a difference in available mu, mu opioid receptor um, availability. The 
Uh, we're not sure whether that's a deficit in endogenous opioids or a decreased receptor effectiveness in, in holding on to the um, endogenous opioids. But just to say that the, if you take a snapshot of the brain receptors, mute opioid receptors in somebody's brain with borderline personality disorder and somebody without, the person with borderline personality is going to have way more availability and open um, receptors than the patient with um, depression or not with um, borderline personality disorder. So there's a difference in opioid functioning in patients with borderline personality disorder, a real biological difference. Also, my oxytocin system works differently. Now, here's a fun study. This is a study where um, it was a computer game called Cyberball, and it was a social computer game where you played with a group of people, and then at some point in the game, the, you as the player were excluded from play. And they tested oxytocin levels before and after exclusion. And they found that patients with borderline personality disorder had a far different, uh, far uh, significant change in oxytocin levels um, from pre to post. So after exclusion, their oxytocin levels changed significantly, which was very different than healthy controls. There was some reduction overall, but uh, it wasn't the same degree of reduction as in uh, the patients with borderline personality disorder. So again, oxytocin responses. We know these are involved in connection, in um, social reciprocity, and these uh, malfunction in patients with borderline personality disorder. I sense microexpressions really well, but macroexpressions dysregulate me. Let's take a look at that face on the left. If you were somebody with bipolar, excuse me, borderline personality disorder, not asleep last night, borderline personality disorder, um, you would look at that face and you would know immediately that that is an angry face. She is angry at you. And that is the correct answer. That is an angry face. It's by the thinness of the lips, the flatness of the eyebrows. Um, there's clear evidence cross-culturally that that is an angry face. Patients with borderline personality disorder identify that even at really low intensity of emotional expression. You see they identify accurately emotional expressions even when that intensity is really low. But when they get up to a high intensity of emotional expression, if that face became really angry, the patient with borderline personality disorder would become hyper-aroused and not know what to do with that. They wouldn't be trust their own accuracy of that anymore. So let's think about that in terms of reaction. So, you know, uh, you, when you react to somebody, would you want to react in a really strong way? Would you want to um, react in a small way? Would you want to, you know, be aware of any micro-expressions that you may have of annoyance or anger? Because they're going to pick it up. That's just the way it is. They're hypersensors. And I, I don't know that that's a bad thing. In fact, that can be a really good thing in many ways, but knowing how to use it and when to use it is really important. So again, uh, they uh, detect microexpressions really easy, but in more intense uh, emotional expressions are, um, are, are disorienting. Now here's a tough one too. I interpret neutral expressions as angry. This face, pretty neutral. He's not got the narrowing of lips. He's got pretty neutral eyebrows, no furrow in his brow. But a patient with borderline personality disorder would be much more likely to interpret this face as negative. So much more negative um, twist on even neutral faces. I give too much to establish emotional connection and then I have an inappropriate high expectation that others will reciprocate. So again, I, I give too much, and then maybe I expect too much that I'm going to get reciprocity from that, what I've given. Here's an interesting study, and it takes a second to unpack here. This is a study where it was a 
uh, a study where they asked participants to give money to a partner and then determine how much they trusted that partner to reciprocate in the relationship. And interestingly, <clears throat> the more with healthy controls, the more people gave the more money that people gave participants gave the less they ended up trusting someone if they gave them a thousand dollars they weren't trusting that they were going to get that back if they gave somebody one dollar they pretty much trusted they were going to get that back now on the other hand uh, patients with borderline personality disorder didn't have that same trend of the more i give maybe the less sure i am that this person is going to reciprocate the more they gave the more they actually implicitly trusted that somebody was going to give back to them it was kind of backwards in some ways from a healthy control um so there's a difference in the way patients with borderline personality disorder invest in other people and expect um, to get things back i have experienced trauma now didn't you say, Dr. Stanley, early in the presentation that, um, <coughs> that, that borderline personality disorder has a lot to do with <coughs> biology, heritability, and not to do with trauma? Well, yes, but I didn't say it didn't experience trauma at all. So let's talk about, <coughs> sorry. <coughs> so clear studies, case control studies, numerous of them have looked at the uh, odds ratio of a person with borderline personality disorder having had any adversity in their life, whether it be abuse, neglect, and they found significant um, increased odds, things especially like emotional abuse, emotional neglect, uh, any adversity in patients with borderline personality disorder. So again, patients with borderline personality disorder report those things much greater um, ratio than they would, uh, than healthy controls do or non-borderline patients do. Now, we know that case control studies are uh, potentially you know, prone to some bias. So they also did these studies as well uh, in epidemiologic manners or with prospective cohorts um, when they're reviewing databases of reported abuse. And we know that's underreported too. So this is likely some underreport. And we do even see in these particular cases that there is um, significant difference in the odds ratio of patients who experience physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse by report. This is, again, the patient didn't have to report this, not recall. This is on a report. Uh, and on prospective cohort studies as well, uh, some uh, significant uh, correlations connections here. So patients with borderline personality disorder absolutely have experienced trauma. The challenging part is that for many patients with a borderline personality disorder, everyday social interactions continue to feel negative. They may actually feel traumatic in a way that patients without borderline personality disorder don't experience them. Now, sadly, when they've done studies to connect, uh, to determine what is the most salient interaction you had that day when they look at patients with borderline personality disorder and patients without a personality disorder, they find that um, if the most salient uh, interaction, emotional interaction they had was an anger interaction, it would, the patients with borderline personalities are much more likely to have had an angry, high salient angry interaction that day than patients without a personality disorder but also much less likely to have a positive interaction, uh, much more likely to have feelings of emptiness come up in an, yeah. in an um, interpersonal interaction or sadness come up in an interpersonal interaction. And even worse, unfortunately, it seems to be that the close people closest to them are the ones that stimulate those interactions most, so family members or romantic partners. So again, this is a challenging situation where patients feel and, and prioritize their negative interactions as the most salient interactions of those days. And unfortunately, it is the people who are closest to them that they hang on to those feelings or interactions with about most. So again, 
trauma exists in patients with borderline personality disorder. There's, you know, in prospective cohort studies um, uh, as well as case cohort studies uh, to a fair degree. As well, patients with borderline personality disorder might feel interactions with other people as more traumatic or more um, emotionally laden than people without a personality disorder. My frontal lobe doesn't do a good job of controlling my amygdala. So here's a, a study looking at the functional connectivity between the um, amygdala and the frontal lobe. So in this healthy controls, you can see as the um, uh, the increased connectivity goes up to the right here. So in, uh, you can see the trend is that um, with that ventral amygdala function, as ventral amygdala function increases, the frontal lobe function increases as well. There's correlation there. Now in patients with um, with uh, borderline personality disorder, that correlation is not the same. There is not the same um, increase or correlation between those two areas. So there is not really very effective functional connectivity between the frontal lobes and the amygdala, which is super important because when your amygdala is firing emotionally, you want those frontal lobes to be able to activate and control it. And patients with borderline personality disorder do not unfortunately have that functional connectivity uh, quite as well. Now, here's the catch. There is a situation where the frontal lobes and the amygdala are quite connected. And when you think about it, gosh darn it, sadly, doesn't this make sense? Pain, inflicted pain, helps people with borderline personality disorder connect their frontal lobes and their amygdalas. So here's a study, I don't know how they got this done, but a sham versus true incision study um, where they took patients with borderline personality disorder and patients who were healthy controls and then gave them a sham incision or gave them a true incision. Uh, and they found that in patients with borderline personality disorder, there is a significant change. You see in healthy controls, if somebody had a sham, they would not have any change in their um, connectivity, their functional connectivity between the frontal lobes and the amygdala. And then in an incision, they would actually get dysregulated. There'd be less connectivity in patients with normal, uh, patients who are normal controls. Now in patients with um, borderline personality disorder, in a sham study, there was still remained some functional connectivity, but you can see kind of the baseline, even a little bit less than in patients with or normal controls, but instead of going down with a true incision, their functional connectivity went up. So again, let me say this, with a skin incision, painful skin incision, the functional connectivity between the frontal lobes and the amygdala in patients with borderline personalities are actually increased. So think about that in the context of, of non-suicidal uh, self-injury, burning, cutting, self-inflicted pain in the context of borderline personality disorder. And then finally, I want to feel better and I can get better. So it is thought historically that patients with borderline personality disorder are gonna have that for their life and they're gonna struggle for the rest of their life. But studies, you know, um, realistic studies uh, show that um, the rates of borderline personality disorder go down significantly um, over time. Um, patients who are, uh, after follow-up of several years, many patients, after 10 years, for instance, the remission rate of patients is about 80%. Um, so that's if they've had the uh, borderline personality disorder for four years, it goes down um, and 80% of people are in remission. After 16 years, 95% of those patients in remission. You can see that at the longer duration, uh, uh, um, the borderline personality disorder 
the the less likely it is to go down, but still a fairly high percentage of, of remission over time. We think this has to do with a lot of different changes, changes in lifestyles, changes in connections with other people socially who ground them or help them learn some new skills, therapy helps. Um, and then also because this is an affective dysregulatory thing, at some point, people in 40s, 50s, 60s, their sympathetic nervous system kind of tones down its response and may not react as strongly and they may not manifest the same symptoms uh, as they did in their prime with borderline personality disorder. So as a quick review, and we're gonna flip now to go to talk about what we can do as clinicians. So inside, Ken, the brain's inherited its challenges. And therefore, because it's inherited its challenges, it's important for us to avoid blame. And we have to acknowledge that borderline personality disorder might not just affect the patient in the room with you, but it might have affected many family members that that patient was, uh, was raised by or was influenced by during their early developmental period. The brain with a borderline personality disorder has opioid and oxytocin circuits that work differently. So it's important that we recognize the limited effect of most psychiatric medications um, on these circuits and the risk of opioid and other substance use disorders because of uh, differences in these circuits. The BPD brain has an easy time identifying subtle emotions, but gets hyper aroused and struggles with micro expressions of emotions. So it's important for us to stay regulated, to contain anger, contain frustration as much as we can. But that doesn't mean we necessarily have to be a, the blank slate because in fact, the BPD brain interprets neutral faces as negative. So what I say, and I think many people have, have come to this conclusion over time, is it's always important to lean in with at least a little bit of positive regard to the patient. That diffuses that potential that they're gonna not know what to do with your ambiguous flat blank slate approach but you're not gonna you know, prompt their dysregulation by going so far into leaning positive. So a little, uh, a little positive regard goes a long way for patients with borderline personality disorder. The BPD brain has a hard time judging social reciprocity and may lead to expectations that are inappropriate. I think it's important therefore to overtly explain your thought process, not just your answers. Again, they don't know how much to invest uh, in you. They may um, think that they're investing a lot or may not uh, understand kind of your thought process about things or how much you're invested in a specific treatment or interaction. So overtly explain your thought process. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. The BPD brain, BPD brain is likely to report having experienced traumas and continues to report many intimate interactions in a negative light. So recognize that you also as someone who may have an intimate interaction with them, will be thought of as the bad doctor at some point. The BPD brain has frontal lobe that does a poor job of controlling the amygdala unless it uses pain. So recognize that not all self-harm is suicidal and that non-suicidal self-harm is often an attempt to modulate really, really challenging internal sensations. And lastly, know that the BPD brain is suffering, wants to get better, and it does. So it's important for us to both make sure that we don't re-traumatize patients along the way, that we continue to support, and we help them find good treatments along the way. They can, patients with BPD can get better just in the course of treatment and life. Their symptoms may decrease. Patients with more significant um, symptoms um, should be uh, sent, uh, referred to effective treatments. So we're going to take each of these um, one by one. So again, avoid blame. Allow the patient, I think, to explore the diagnosis and see if it fits. Again, it can be really hard if, you're, if there's disagreement and they are not ready to understand this diagnosis and you just give them the diagnostic criteria and say, you meet this disorder, it's not gonna be taken very well. Patients with what I've found significantly, patients with borderline personalities are, are way 
more comfortable with the self-diagnosis of it. And many actually are very open to that when they've not found anything that's worked and they've not found anyone that's understood them in the past. Looking at a couple screening tools and a way of thinking about borderline personality disorder, many patients self-diagnose and they're like, crap, that's what I have. Let me get treatment for it. One thing that you can use is the McLean screening instrument for BPD. And essentially this is just the BPD DSM criteria phrased in questions that you know, the patient can pose to themselves. Um, and so it takes that interpersonal aspect out of it to some degree. And um, seven or higher on this, seven yeses or higher indicates um, high likelihood of meeting borderline personality criteria. So it's an easy thing to utilize in your clinic. I've gotten in the habit of pulling it out very commonly during, uh, you know, uh, psychiatric assessments with patients when uh, I think it may be a little bit more than depression. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes patients don't screen high. Sometimes they do. And, but it's helpful to know. The other way is to use the Gunderson diagram and just pulling this out and saying, gosh, you know, I have this thing that some patients that I've worked with have experienced symptoms in relationship to interpersonal stresses. And I'm wondering whether you experience this as well when you're connected with someone, it feels really good, but ultimately that may lead you to over-idealize them, maybe feel a little bit dependent on them and maybe even sensitivity to rejection from them. Any stress that comes up between the two of you, perceived hostility or even just separation, they go away for a vacation or go out with a friend, a different friend one night or criticism, they say they don't like something about what you do, leads to a loss of connectedness and feeling threatened in a place where you might devalue or self-injure or where your anger or anxiety comes out, or you may do things that help seek, call a friend to be reassured or to you know, desperately seek reconnection with them or ask them if they could change their mind about what they're gonna do. Ultimately, if they, that person withdraws further, it might make you feel alone, dissociate, so feel out of body, feel paranoia, really wonder why the heck they're doing this. There must be some nefarious reason why they're doing this. Feel more impulsive and help re reject further. And anytime, again, you could be supported by the other. Someone could come to your rescue. It may not even be that person, but you may feel connected again. Sometimes it happens when the next person comes along and you feel very connected with that person and quickly let go of the person before. Again, it's a tough situation because in the end, you may feel overconnected again, and that may lead to be feeling threatened um, again in the future. So ultimately you wanna find a, a place in between these two to feel connected enough so that you don't feel highly threatened when something comes up enough uh, ability to share a difference um, and to have differences of opinion or differences in perspectives and not feel um, physically threatened by that difference. So you could use either of those, the McLean or the Gunderson diagram to help talk with patients about whether or not these symptoms fit, whether this uh, adheres to their experience and whether or not they might consider borderline personality disorder as a, as a more precise diagnosis to the experiences they've had. Because if they do, there's good treatments for it. Again, avoid blame. Really, part of that is providing psychoeducation to patients about the heritability, about that there are effective treatments, and there's actually really good outcomes. This is a great website. I will recommend this to anybody who's worked with patients with borderline personality disorder. The National Education Alliance for Borderline Personality Disorder has a lot of really great resources, especially for families. Um, this is the website borderlinepersonalitydisorder.org. Um, you can learn a lot about BPD there. This is the first stop I send to patients who have BPD or the families of patients who have BPD too. It's a, um, as opposed to books like Stop Walking on Eggshells, which is very pejorative towards patients with BPD. This is very supportive. Um, very grounded in reality and neurobiology, but it also um, 
is positive and hopeful and collaborative. Instead of telling a family member how they can deal with a patient with borderline personality disorder, this is a website that tells families how they can help their loved one with borderline personality disorder, which is a huge difference. Here's some of the tips for families. I'm just going to go through them super quick here. Go slowly. Change is difficult to achieve and it's fraught with fears. Temper your expectations. Set realistic goals that are attainable. So again, we say that borderline personality disorder is not going to get fixed in a day. It's not going to get fixed in a week or even a month or probably not even in six months. This is a slow process of building skills and helping the, the patient be more confident in themselves, be able to control their emotions or be aware of. Uh, manage their emotions, and be able to be more interpersonally effective. Be cautious and keep things cool. So avoid suggesting things like great process or you can do it. That sometimes provokes fears of abandonment. So you're doing great. That mean I have to do this all by myself now anymore? That means you think I can do this um, independently? So appreciation and disagreement are both normal. Tone them down. Again, remember that curve of emotional reactivity. You don't want to go all the way and dysregulate somebody with your overly positive emotions either. You want to stay somewhere toned down where you can have some positive affect, but it doesn't dysregulate somebody. Maintain family routines as much as possible so you can stay in touch with family or friends. There's more to life than just problems. This is super important for families where they focus on the BPD symptoms and that's all their relationship becomes. Unfortunately, you've lost a lot in your life and the potential benefits of family when that's all you focus on. So again, spending um, enjoyable time doing other things that you both enjoy where the focus of your interaction is not the BPD. Find time to talk. Checks about light or neutral matters are helpful and schedule time to do this. Manage crises. Self-destructive acts do require attention, but don't panic. Listen, avoid defensiveness, and keep providers informed. For most patients, there is a clear crisis process, crisis plan, where a provider has and the patient and the family have developed, and families are recommended to stick to that and just go through that plan with their loved one. Again, more panic is just going to make them feel more dysregulated as well. Know the plan, stick to the plan. So those are some general tips for families, and that can be really helpful. But again, on the website, the borderlinepersonalitydisorder.org, there's a whole heck of a lot more there. Great videos, great handouts, and things that are super helpful. Two, explain the limited effect of most psychiatric medications and the risk of opioid use and other substance use disorders. So here's a quote from John Gunderson. When borderline personality disorder is present with other disorders, Borderline personality disorder should almost always be treated as primary disorder because improvement in BPD leads to the improvement of other disorders. Sadly, treating the other disorders as primary is often not effective when BPD is present. A lot of studies have shown, and I'll show you on the next slide, certain um, disorders where the BPD is primary and some very specific ones where some more work needs to be done before you can focus on the BPD, even if the borderline personality disorder is clearly present. There's high comorbidity. I mean, this is what makes it confusing. 50% of um, uh, or patients with borderline personality disorder, 50% of them have major depressive disorder. 50% have panic disorder. 35% substance use disorder. 30% post-traumatic stress disorder. So again, not everybody with BPD has PTSD, only 30%. Bipolar disorder, there's actually statistically increased rates of true bipolar disorder in patients with BPD. So there's some maybe shared uh, neurobiological uh, predisposition in BPD and bipolar one. Maybe why they're so confused. But again, the rates of bipolar disorder are more like three to 5% of the general population. So it's maybe even three times the amount of uh, rates of bipolar disorder in patients with BPD compared to general pop. Here are the situations where 
uh, treating the BPD first uh, would be important and, and the situations where it might not be. So any really, really severe psychiatric disorder or substance use disorder where they're not, the patient may not be able to maintain their full cognitive function is not going to work to treat BPD first. BPD treatment is almost exclusively psychotherapeutic, and you have to have cognitive functioning be, to be able to engage. So severe major depressive disorder, you would not treat the BPD first because you're unable to use BPD treatments. But for mild or moderate major depressive disorder, absolutely, certainly. When you treat the BPD and BPD remits, the depression almost certainly does. Similarly, with bipolar disorder, if the patient's not manic or even bipolar disorder too, if BPD exists, very commonly treat the BPD. Um, and either the, the disorder itself, BPD2, almost remits completely. And certainly even in BPD or bipolar affective disorder, bipolar disorder one, uh, the recurrent rate, the recurrence rate decreases significantly if BPD remits. Maybe not completely, they may still have depressive or manic episodes based on their underlying predisposition neurobiologically, but the rate uh, of those uh, uh, frequency of those uh, episodes will decrease significantly. And again, you can go down this list. So most anxiety disorders treat the BPD first. Um, and any other uh, personality disorders, narcissistic personality disorder, there is some response to BPD treatments, interestingly. Now, things like really severe early onset complex PTSD, sometimes if there's too much vigilance or too much difficulty attaching, um, they need um, some other PTSD treatment or even just supportive treatment for a long period of time before directly addressing the BPD. They need to trust way before they can start going down the road of a um, uh, dialectical, behavior, dialectical behavioral therapy. And many patients with adult onset PTSD, you know, if they do have BPD as well, there is some evidence that it can be helpful to treat the BPD first. So I won't go any more into that for the sake of time, but again, some others, severe recent substance use, active substance use especially, no, don't do that. And the anorexia, it's severe, no, don't do that. But if it's milder, um, you may be able to utilize it. What are the treatments for BPD? Now, I'm just gonna to briefly touch on these. So when we refer someone, when we say, you're, we wanna treat your borderline personality disorder as the primary disorder here, what do we um, point people to? So here are the four treatments. I'm not only gonna go into them briefly. Dialectical behavioral therapy, which is Marshall in the hands. It's basically a cognitive behavioral th based therapy. Um, it trains people on mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotional regulation, interpersonal effectiveness. It is a, a therapy that works um, through both use of groups and individual therapy and family connections. Interestingly, many of these borderline personality disorder treatments, when they are used in children who have borderline personality disorder, oftentimes they've found that it's more effective to teach the parents DBT or mindfulness-based treatment it's more effective to teach them than it is to teach the kids. They'll teach the kids the stuff. They can use it and use it um, on themselves. But their situation doesn't get better until the parent's situation does. Remember the heritability. You're treating the whole family. You're teaching a whole cluster of people these same skills to be able to use with each other. So again, in young persons, it may be more effective to have the parents do dialectical behavioral therapy than it would be to have the, uh, the kid do it. Mentalization-based therapy is slightly different. That's Vonnegut-Bateman from the UK. It's more psychoanalytically based. So is transference-focused uh, psychotherapy. And, and it's basically more, less on emotional regulation and more on the 
building a capacity to be aware of and to think about oneself and others in terms of meaningful mental states, to mentalize. Why is that other person doing what they're doing? That's the fundamental difference between DBT and mentalization-based therapy. DBT is postulated that it's the emotional dysregulation that causes the problem. The mentalization-based treatment is postulated on the fact that it might be people's incapacity to mentalize and understand why other people are doing the things that they're doing that leads to the emotional dysregulation. So it just acts on two different, is one kind of more on the frontal lobes, one on the amygdala. And then I would just focus on this last one, general psychiatric management. And this was something that was actually found in a, as it was used as a case, uh, as a control for some studies, but it was actually found to be quite effective. And it basically is just a strong psychoeducation and support um, process, talking about the diagnosis, understanding the course, practical focus on a realistic focus on the stressors and family education. Um, and all these things um, were found even in once weekly um, therapy uh, with a psychiatrist and inclusion of family psychoeducation to be helpful in the long term probably more with patients who are on the lower end of severity of borderline personality disorder, but it was quite effective. Just briefly talk about the medications. In general, no medications lead to remission of BPD. Some medications have had some evidence for benefit with specific symptom clusters, and mostly as a way to get people's symptoms down enough that they can then engage in psychotherapy. So you can see here, some mood stabilizers, lamotrigine, the most commonly, may be helpful with anger and impulsivity. Antipsychotics, when patients are truly dysregulated and maybe even have some cognitive or perceptual disturbances, again, that paranoia that can come up in, in severe um, dissociation, those kind of states um, if people are grossly dysregulated. But again, anxiolytics have very little evidence. Even SSRIs have very little evidence, maybe a tiny bit for patients with significant depression symptoms or impulsivity, um, that might be more wellbutrin, and then tricyclic antidepressants for anger. So again, not as much utility SSRIs. Overall, again, the big message is they don't get to remission, they can be helpful uh, in pointed ways for symptom clusters to enable somebody to get into therapy. Stay regulated, contain your anger or frustration. John Gunderson's principles of the provider, how to have a provider relationship with a patient with borderline personality disorders, to be active and not reactive, to model emotions with a contained active mind, to be thoughtful, model the use of the frontal lobes. Recognize that the relationship is a real one, that you have effects on the patients, they consider you a real part of their lives, but it's a professional one. It's important, he says, to like the patient as a person, to be genuine, but to also remain their doctor. Again, you're trying to balance that connectivity, and um, feeling threatened. You're trying to be that middle person for them, help keep them in the middle. Be flexible, flexible, pragmatic, and eclectic. So you're modeling flexibility and learning over time. You can model and teach uh, patients with borderline personality disorder through um, those values. Always lean in with some appropriate positive regard. I think that's contained here. I think it's important that if you are a provider who's working with patients with borderline personality disorder and you're finding yourself getting dysregulated, find a colleague who can help provide perspective and reorient to caring for the and I mean not just physically caring for their condition, but actually caring about their well-being. Uh, and that makes a big difference. It can help regulate your emotions, get you back into that zone where the patient can see you and understand your emotions a little bit better and help you bring on your frontal lobes so that you can um, have interactions where you might overtly explain your thought processes, for instance. Because it's hard to do this when your emotions are, are ramped up. Here's some examples of of uh, two examples of a clinician overtly describing their thought processes that prevent the patient from any misunderstandings, but also kind of toe that gray line that some of these things are hard. I'm sorry you're suffering. It sounds like there's a part of you that really feels a medication would fix the pain you're experiencing now. 
And maybe another part that realizes that it's not just your body hurting after some of the things you've experienced. As your doctor, part of me wants to make you feel better quickly, but I also wonder if just prescribing a medication is overlooking the other parts of you that are suffering, and then maybe harmed further by giving you a medication that could contribute to dependence. These are tough decisions, and there may not be a perfect answer, but I wanna make sure we consider the effects of my recommendations on all the aspects of who you are. A father, employee, a friend, a person in recovery, in addition, to a patient with pain. How should we take all those parts of you into account in helping you get through this tough period? Or in the case of somebody who is a patient who has having some suicidal thoughts and you're wondering whether hospitalization might or might not be the best thing for them. I'm willing to hospitalize you despite my concern that it will not be helpful. I would do this because I fear you'll become more suicidal if I do not. Am I right about that? We would both be better if we could find an alternative, yes? Again, you're trying to toe that line, give them insight into your brain, a window into your thoughts, overtly explain your thought processes. Recognize that you will be likely thought of the bad, as the bad doctor at some point. So this is, um, this is D.W. Winnicott, who is a child uh, uh, therapist who talked about the good enough mother. Perfect mothers are bad mothers in the end. That's, that's the end goal of his, or uh, end game of his argument. Um, you don't want to be good enough. You want to be slightly fallible, you know, open to doing things wrong at times, but just trying to be good and, and make up for it in the end. Focus on being the good enough doctor. That's what we should be doing, not the perfect doctor. Be available, be a secure base and don't abandon patients. Be a resource for knowledge. Uh, be responsive, care, don't dismiss, respond, but within clearly explained parameters and channels. Engaged, be engaged, be flexible in your ideas, but have boundaries. You throw in some things that are not helpful and would be harmful for a patient, I can't do those. Seek to repair misunderstandings, but really only rational. You can only go so far. I'm willing to repair and talk about this and think about some other ideas with you. So let's do that. But inside, you're also making sure that you have the clear boundaries of places you won't go with that patient as well. If the patient is splitting the team, again, this can happen all the time with patients with borderline personalities where one doctor's good, the other doctor's bad, one nurse is good, one nurse is bad, um, one consultant is great, the, the primary care doctor is bad. So if the patient is splitting the team, Make sure to get the team together. And what I mean by that is not necessarily physically, but on the same page. Process what's happening and why. Why is this happening? And establish team boundaries that everyone shares. How can we all agree what the plan is for this patient? No mixed messages for the patient. Again, that's dysregulating. Ambiguity, hugely dysregulating. Super helpful to get everybody on the same page with a clear message. And express value for all members of the team. Even if the skill sets vary, you can model that good enough doctor experience. They are a thoughtful doctor. They are good. None of us are perfect, but he's going to work hard and try to help you. That doctor may not be the one who's going to help with that particular aspect of your care. They're a really good doctor and have helped a lot of people, but maybe that's not their forte. And maybe we should be helping you find somebody else who, who focuses on that. Everybody's good enough in their own way. And recognize not all self-harm is suicidal. I think it's really important to become comfortable asking about non-suicidal self-injury and related feelings. Here's a phrase that Gunderson uses. I know that some people who experience stressors similar to yours think about hurting themselves on purpose without intending suicide. Have you ever hurt yourself without in intending to end your life or attempt suicide? Like cutting, biting, burning, or hitting. Can you tell me what your mind is feeling or in thinking prior to hurting yourself? So really engaging in a, in a conversation about non-suicidal self-injury, what it does for patients, when it comes up for them, it can be really important to understand your patient and how they manage stressors.
It is important to know when to be able to get people to safety. And I've included this from the Handbook of Good Psychiatric Management and personality, Borderline Personality Disorder from Gunderson's book again. You can see here that certainly there are times where non-suicidal self-injury can be dangerous and might require intensive outpatient treatment, such as is available at the Providence systems. And then certainly suicidal risk can be increased. But if it's not dangerous, you may keep them in the outpatient setting. We have a lot of patients who have suicidal thoughts still. Uh, but if it is dangerous, a hospital setting may be necessary temporarily to help somebody regulate and then get back out to their more effective outpatient treatments. Again, hospitalization should be thought as very short term for patients with borderline personality disorder. Again, it can trigger that, that abandonment upon discharge, what am I going to do? And clear handoffs between inpatient and intensive outpatient very quickly are important for many patients with borderline personality disorder so that they can um, feel contained to some degree, but not also not solely contained in a hospitalized setting. And then we can help patients find good treatments. And this is just a diagram to show at what point you might consider which treatments. So whether it's preclinical, just psychoeducation, supportive counseling, you know, early on, the first episode of BPD, minimal self-harm, really just psychiatrist or a DPT skills group, or the DPT has a great skills group, which they just meet and learn skills. If the symptoms become more sustained, you know, again, enhancing with DBT and maybe a single model of an evidence-based training DBT and mentalization or transference focused. And then more severe, certainly a higher level of care. Now there's some evidence that if patients are not getting help with higher level of care, you might have to just decrease the level of care if they're not getting better with that. And sometimes it just takes more time to pick up the maybe a little bit higher risk to do. You may consider, gosh, somebody who's got frequent suicidal thoughts and a lot of cutting, are you just gonna let them not be in the hospital? But actually, sometimes that's what works in the end. So a higher level of care, a patient is not responding to those things. It may not warrant that ongoing higher level of care. We've included some resources here. Individual therapists can be found, and then therapy groups. Um, there are some groups that specialize in, in um, dialectical behavioral therapy, and then um, uh, full fidelity programs whether it's Portland DBT Institute or intensive outpatient programs like the Providence um, intensive outpatient programs, which we love. <laughs> so thank you very much. Um, there's a lot more to learn on this. There's some great training institutes. DBT, has, Portland DBT Institute has some trainings. Uh, Behavioral Tech, which is Marshall Linehan's Institute up in Seattle, has a number of online and in-person trainings. Actually, I'm not sure if they're in-person. And the McLean and the Anna Freud Center in McLean's where Gunderson uh, was, and they now have it named after him, and the Anna Freud Center in London, where uh, mentalization-based therapy comes out of. Also have a ton of trainings all the time, and they're great to look into. There's also other great books that you can use, the um, borderlinepersonality.org, borderlinepersonalitydisorder.org website has a list of a number of books available that can be helpful for patients, families, and providers. So let's review our objectives real quick. First, we were, we were intended to understand the internal experience of patients with borderline personalities. So I think we went through that, um, looking at the Gunderson diagram of interpersonal coherence. We looked at the basic neurobiological findings in persons with BPD, including these like dysregulation at higher levels, intensity of emotional expression, deficits in opioid and oxytocin uh, systems. And we outlined the most effective treatments for persons with borderline personality disorder and comorbid psychiatric disorders. So when might you treat the borderline personality disorder first in comparison to a comorbid disorder? 
when you might not. And then what are the available evidence-based treatments for borderline personality disorder and how, how should we know when a patient uh, might be a best fit for one or the other? And that's what we talked about. <laughs> Hopefully it was helpful. Certainly I look forward to your questions and other outreach in the future if you ever have any future questions. End there. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Stanley. Um, really fascinating and informative talk. Um, we certainly have a few questions and the bit of time that we have left. Uh, so we'll go ahead and launch into those. Um, okay. First off, um, should the borderline diagnosis stay on a patient's problem list, um, particularly beyond a certain age, maybe 50? Um, such patients often feel stigmatized with that label, um, particularly if they have greatly improved. Yeah, that is a super good question. You know, it's it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, I, I think our DSM-5 hasn't quite caught up with that yet. Um, I think of it in many ways as, um, you know, alcohol use disorder in sustained remission. It's somebody with a susceptibility, but yet their symptoms at the current time are, are such that uh, they're not causing functional impairment for them. Um, and so I, I think it is a tough decision. I think in patients where it's clear that they are out of the woods and really functioning quite highly, taking that off can be really uh, important to their ongoing care so that they're not stigmatized. That said, if it may be early on and we don't have a time frame where people are at most risk, risk of relapse, um, you know, whereas depression, we know within the first year or so, you're really high risk of relapse, um, similar with um, substance use disorders. But with borderline personality disorder, we don't know that. Um, I think it's fair a year or two out if it's not causing any problems to take it off um, the problem list. Thank you, that's extremely helpful to think about. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about um, the, the role of the primary care physician, um, which is a large part of our audience today, um, particularly uh, regarding the diagnosis and, and potential uh, recognition or early treatment steps um, for borderline uh, personality disorder. Um, particularly interesting to, to think about um, how often it is effective to treat this first uh, prior to other um, co-occurring disorders that we may have more familiarity or comfort with treating. Um, so I wonder in the primary care setting, are there particular um, symptoms or presentations that might prompt us to uh, take a closer look for this diagnosis? Um, Maybe I'll start with that question first. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think certainly the non-suicidal self-injury is the most common. So when asking about suicidal ideation, that's not stop right there. Continue on to ask about non-suicidal self-injury. So if someone is, has a, you know, a prominent history of cutting or is currently engaged in cutting or other non-suicidal self-injury, I think that is a, a great time to start thinking, okay, do I need to do a little bit more assessment for this? If, if someone's depression symptoms are almost purely reactive to um, life situations and may kind of rapidly um, resolve in the context of, you know, resolving life crises as well, that's another circumstance. Um, certainly, you know, I think more commonly in the primary care setting um, is, you know, somebody who gets a 20 on the PHQ-9, is treated with a couple different antidepressants and nothing gets better, um, then that might be a time to also reevaluate. So, gosh, am I missing something here? Should we um, reevaluate, you know, both for things like 
bipolar disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, ADHD, but I think borderline personality disorder should absolutely be in the mix of assessments given its commonality. Great, thank you. Um, it was also really helpful to learn about the McLean um, screening instrument um, for TAPS as a more uh, patient-centered way to bring the DSM criteria in front of the patient. Um, wondered if you have particular strategies for introducing that conversation or screening, recognizing that there is a certain amount of stigma or perhaps some hesitation on the patient's part to explore that diagnosis. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting uh, epidemiologically, and it's maybe not the right word, but generationally, um, how patients who are generally between the ages of teens and mid 20s to 30 have no problem looking at those symptoms and being like, yep, I got that. That's exactly what I have. And patients who maybe have been through a lot of other treatments or have had you know, traumatic interactions, what they feel is traumatic interactions with healthcare providers who are much more loath to, you know, uh, uh, much more loath to self-diagnose in some ways. Um, in my experience is that um, I will generally use it in uh, assessments if I am, you know, just generally assessing for someone's depression or anxiety symptoms, and I note either interactionally with the patient or in some of their history, and I will bring it up and say, you know, I would hate to miss something, just like I would hate to miss post-traumatic stress disorder or a substance use disorder. I would hate to miss something that has a completely different treatment that actually can be really effective. And and I will, um, I will just as the PHQ-9 has a fairly innocuous name to it, even though we know it, uh, it diagnoses or you know, helps uh, screen for depression, I will say this is a questionnaire that I utilize to help um, make sure I don't miss other mental health disorders. Can we go through the questions? I won't say anything about borderline personality disorder upfront. And then I will say, after I get to the end and they've got seven or more, I will say, you know, this, this is a questionnaire that screens for um, borderline personality disorder. Um, which is a, a very treatable neurobiological disorder that many patients with depression or anxiety might have underlying their depression or anxiety and maybe a reason why depression or anxiety treatments haven't worked in the past. I actually hate the name. I will actually call it interpersonal hypersensitivity disorder. And, you know, I, I'll be upfront that I, I think patients can really be helped when they address this particular disorder, even if it historically has had a stigmatizing name. Um, you know, sometimes even just asking, you know, have you heard of borderline personality disorder will give you a sense of kind of where they're at. Some patients, especially younger ones, will say, oh, yeah, I totally heard. I had a friend who was diagnosed with that, or I saw that on a movie, or I saw, you know, some celebrity who mentioned that they had struggled with that and gotten treatment. Um, many patients may have even stumbled upon it themselves when trying to self-diagnose some of their challenges over time. So I, I think asking a question like that can really open you up open up the conversation to where somebody's at with even being open to um, that name of the diagnosis. Is that helpful? Yeah, ab absolutely helpful. And I think it's been an important part of this talk um, to, to see evidence for the high rates of remission um, and that there are successful treatments. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and uh, it seemed like there's quite a, a wealth of information is potentially a next step with regard to being aware of resources to refer to for effective treatment, as well as the bpd.org website that you pointed out. Um, so perhaps we can have uh, some follow-up of sharing um, some of those resources to, to help our, our, our colleagues who don't always have um, timely access to psychiatric specialty referral. Yeah. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, anything I can do to be helpful it is certainly a, a challenging mental health system out there right now. And uh, you know, we're probably a few years out from being able to bolster it in a way that is you know, really meaningful for patients, but hopefully with awareness and increases in training capacity, and we'll be able to get there in the coming years. Absolutely, really appreciate the great collaboration with our psychiatry colleagues. Um, so we are just at the top of the hour and I will leave us there. Thanks again, Dr. Stanley. Yeah, thanks Dr. Lucia, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for everything you all do too. It really does, is meaningful for patients. Great.